invite you now to turn to Micah chapter 4. It's on page 778 in the Pew Bibles. Micah chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. Also, uh, before we read again, just wanted to remind you of, of the structure of Micah as we've been looking at the last several weeks. Micah breaks down nicely chapters 1 and 2, uh, which we looked at entitled From Judgment to Hope. Uh, chapters 3 through 5, which we've broken down into two sections last week, we looked at From Ruins to Glory. This week, we're looking at From Pain to Peace. And next week, James is still trying to decide uh, for chapter 6 and 7, From What to What. We suggested in the car on the way to Presbytery, From Josh to James. But that might be, uh, if you know us, you know we're all into just quirky things and, and funny church names for church plants. If you ever want to ask us some of our amazing names for church plants that we've come up with over the years, uh, you can ask us later. But in all seriousness, um, <laughs> let's look at God's word here. Micah 4, 8 through five fifteen. Please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished, that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. 
And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. And I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you. And you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, you are the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, before whom angels worship, crying, holy, holy, holy. God, we tremble to be in your presence. We ask that you would show us your glory, that you would speak through your holy word, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you've been around here very long, you know that I'm a big lyrics guy. I love song lyrics. I love analyzing them. I love understanding the story, the background story uh, about why songs were written. I love discovering after 30 plus years of listening to a song that, oh, I thought they were saying this when they were actually saying this. Uh, back in the day when you bought a, a cassette tape, if you were lucky, uh, you would fold out the paper thing on the inside and sometimes they would have the lyrics to the songs. You couldn't Google it, right? There was nowhere to go and find the song lyrics. So you had to do your best to just guess what they were saying. And so, you know, some songs are, are just hard to understand and there's all kinds of fun you know websites out there that you can look all these things up but i'm just i just geek out about that kind of stuff i love lyrics i love i love analyzing them and we talk a lot about these things around here uh, especially at the time of advent and christmas we like to talk about the lyrics of songs and what they mean and why they were written uh, as you may remember over the past couple months as we sang a bunch of advent and christmas songs that there are a couple songs that are actually songs that are about the second coming of Jesus. They're Advent songs, and we think they're songs that are written about his birth and his first coming, but they're actually written and intended to talk about his second coming. A couple of those songs are Joy to the World and O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Again, primarily Advent songs that speak of Christ's second coming. And this is really important because it changes the way we think about what we're singing, right? We need to know what we're singing about. And as you listen to a song, and maybe, you know, there's like weird songs like Hotel California and all these, like nobody knows what it's really about, right? And there's all these like symbol, symbol, symbolic things. But we want to know, like even when we hear a secular song, we want to know the heart behind it, right? We want to know what, like, why did this person write this song? Because we get really into it, right? And we get engaged in it. So as we sing songs to God, we want to understand why we're singing. 
one of the major themes as we sing a lot of Advent and Christmas songs is peace. We want to enter into that. We want to understand this idea of peace. Consider the third verse of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. O come, desire of nations bind, in one the hearts of all mankind. Bid thou our sad divisions cease, and be thyself our king of peace. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. This idea of peace is not unfamiliar as we think about the birth of Christ. Luke chapter 2, verse 14, the angels sang, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom, with whom he is pleased. Now, the third and fourth lines of this verse of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, are very important. It says, Bid thou our sad divisions cease, and be thyself our king of peace. As we saw last week in chapter 4, there is this imagery of restoration, of nations beating their swords into plowshares, of the absence of war. And we said that this is going to take place in the latter days. I argued that this is not some golden age here on earth, but the reality upon Jesus' return and the consummation of all things. This is the reality of the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem when these things happen, when there is the absence of war and there is finally true peace. Well, speaking of music, if you are a fan of country music, you know that most country artists have recorded a Christmas album, for better or for worse. In 1993, Vince Gill released a Christmas album titled Let There Be Peace on Earth, singing the title track with his young daughter. Very cute song. And most of that album, I had to go back and look at it. I remember it coming out, uh, but I had to go back and look. Most of them are secular songs, like Santa Claus is Coming to Town and all of this including this one, Let There Be Peace on Earth, which was originally written in 1955. While it mentions God, I believe it paints a fundamentally inaccurate picture of peace on earth. Pretty short uh, song. I mean, as they sing it, they sing it multiple times, but the lyrics aren't, there not, aren't that many lyrics. Let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. Let there be peace on earth, the peace that was meant to be. With God as our father, brothers all are we, and get into that, but let me walk with my brother in perfect harmony. Let peace begin with me. Let this be the moment now. With every step I take, let this be my solemn vow. To take each moment and live each moment in peace eternally. Let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. Now, what's wrong with this picture? 16 lines, again, pretty short, three times saying, let it begin with me. Contrast that with the line we saw in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And be thyself our king of peace. Peace doesn't begin with us. The reason there is no peace in this world is precisely because of us. The author of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel recognized this. And we get in that song a Christ-centered picture of peace. While the author of Let There Be Peace on Earth 
takes a very man-centered approach. If we've been paying attention over the last couple of months to the minor prophets, we know which approach the people of Israel were taking. We saw it last week in chapter 3, verse 5. The prophets who were not being faithful to the Lord were giving a message of peace to the people when all was well, when they had something to eat, but they were declaring war against the Lord, interesting, when he was putting nothing into their mouths. That's probably mean, meant both literally and figuratively. Literally, when they had nothing to eat, they were declaring war against God. And when there was no word of the Lord to these false prophets, they were also declaring war against the Lord. So the question for us today is, where do we believe that peace comes from? Does it come from God? Can it only come from God? Or can it come from us and our own efforts? Now, I want us to see in our text today in Micah how the people of Israel in the 8th century BC were confronted with these questions as it related to their relationship to the surrounding nations. Then I want us to consider in our day, as followers of Jesus, how these truths from Micah's day apply to us today as the church of Jesus Christ. Now, Micah 4.18 through 5.15 is a bit more difficult to outline and to divide up than the previous two weeks. There are some overlapping uh, themes in these verses. There are some sharp time shifts going from future to present to past. Uh, there are some other sharp contrasts that happen. And I want to try to be faithful to the text this morning and not impose a structure on it that might not be there. Uh, it's one of the things as, as preachers we wrestle with, right? We want to unpack the text in a way that's helpful to remember, but sometimes we can put some artificial structures on it that maybe aren't there. We can import some of our ideas onto the text that aren't there. So I don't want to do that. I don't ever want to do that, but especially today, I don't think there's this clear structure. So I don't want to put some artificial structure on it. So we're just going to walk through this passage. I'm not going to give you any headings or outlines, um, but we're going to hopefully see how all of this fits together and, and kind of the, the title of the sermon from from pain to peace we're going to talk about that as we see see that in the text but we begin here in verse 8 of chapter 4 uh, some commentators put verse 8 with verses 6 and 7 I chose to introduce our whole text today with verse 8 because of this theme that we see of dominion and kingship uh, we see that it says, and you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, speaking of the future, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. That theme is going to be kind of repeated a little bit throughout here of dominion and kingship. Again, this is an indication of future glory, like we saw last week in verses 6 through 7, this restoration of Jerusalem that was to be anticipated in the reign of a future king. This hope of a future king goes way back, even to the time of Abraham, who was promised by God that he would be made into nations and that kings would come from him, Genesis 17.6. The same promise was given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that one of David's offspring would have his kingdom established by God and that he would sit on his throne forever. Now, these two Old Testament promises going back before uh, the days of Micah here from the Abrahamic covenant and from the Davidic covenant 
They were intended to be remembered and to be held tightly to by God's people, especially when they were facing the type of adversity that they were here in Micah's day. They were to hold fast to these promises of a future king and a future kingdom for God's people. We see that in verses 9 and 10. We see the, what's going on in Micah's day. It begins with these questions that point to the reality of the coming exile. It says, now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain sees you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. This here is a picture of pain, of the present reality of what God's people are facing. And the coming reality of exile, if you see the middle chunk of verse 10, it says, For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. Exile was coming. God had promised it. And there was no escaping what was to come. But just as there is the pain of labor, there is a tremendous amount of joy and celebration that comes with the new life after birth. That is seen in the last part of verse 10, which points to the hope of restoration and return. It says, there you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. For the people of Judah from 586 to 516 BC, Babylon was a literal place of exile and captivity. Today, Babylon is the world around us that ensnares people, from which we need to be rescued and redeemed by the Lord. If you read the book of Revelation, Babylon is referred to kind of as that worldly kingdom, that worldly power that opposes God's people. And the good news is that if you are in Christ today, you have been rescued and redeemed from this world that seeks to make you captive to its ways. But you also know at the same time that life in this world is extremely difficult. Just because we've been rescued and redeemed from the ways of this world, it doesn't mean everything is hunky-dory, right? It doesn't mean everything's easy. Like the Israelites and their labor pains, we are reminded by Paul in Romans 8, 22, and 23 that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So there's this reminder of the present reality and the present hope of redemption that we have in Jesus, but that we're still longing, right? We're still longing to be completely set free from sin and death. We're still longing for our future bodies. So there's always this already and this not yet. We see it obviously very clearly in the New Testament with what Jesus has done. But even here in the minor prophets, there's this picture of, look, this is your present reality. God God has redeemed you. He's already redeemed you out of Egypt. He's going to redeem you out of Babylon. But there still is this future hope to come. There's this future deliverance that we need to look forward to. Again, this already and not yet reality for us is our redemption in Jesus. His blood shed on the cross for us, but that waiting and longing for the future day. And Paul then goes on to talk about prayer in the spirit in the midst of our weaknesses, where the Holy Spirit 
intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. Brothers and sisters, I know some of the things that are heavy on your hearts. In the last couple of weeks, I've had an unusually high number of conversations with people about difficulties that they are facing. Many of them are, are outside of this church. Many are other friends, other pastors I know in ministry. And it would be a crushing burden to my soul if my song was, let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. Let me be the hero pastor who's going to swoop in and fix all of your problems. But that's not my song. And that's not your song. Praise be to God. Now, before we get to our song, let's look briefly at the rest of chapter 4. Verses 11 to 13 are a picture of the nations gathering together against God's people, thinking that they've won, that they've had their way with them. But as we see in verse 12, they don't realize that God has them right where he wants them, even though it temporarily, temporarily looks like defeat for God's people. Look at verse 12, speaking of the nations, but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. It speaks then of verse 13 of the judgment that God's people will have against the nations. Verse 5, 1 then says, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against you. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. This is a reference to the Assyrian army laying siege to Jerusalem in 701 BC under King Hezekiah, the judge who would be struck on the cheek. You can go and read this account in 2 Kings 18 or Isaiah 36. Amazing picture of God's deliverance of his people, of him defeating the Assyrian army himself. God would deliver Jerusalem from the Assyrians in 701 BC, but not from the Babylonians in 586. As we've already seen, judgment was coming. It was inevitable because of the sins of God's people and because God had promised it. But again, there was hope. And that's what we see in verses 2 through 5. Last week, we talked about Cinderella stories. Now, this here is a Cinderella story about little old Bethlehem. Bethlehem Ephrathah, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, it's interesting here. Why is it called Bethlehem Ephrathah? Well, there was another town in Judah called Bethlehem. And to distinguish, uh, it uses this term. Ephrathah was actually the original name of Bethlehem. So that's where the distinction comes in here. And these names here are probably significant. Bethlehem means house of bread. We see a lot of these uh, names in uh, in. The Old Testament, Beth, whatever, uh, Beth means house. So uh, Beth, Lechem is bread in Hebrew. So Bethlehem, uh, Beth El is the house of God, El for Elohim. So whenever you see that house, 
of whatever. So house of bread here. Ephrathah means fruitfulness. So despite the hardships of exile, God would again feed his people and make them fruitful. From the little town of Bethlehem would come forth a ruler whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Now, obviously, we know who this is about. Matthew in Matthew 2.6 quotes this verse, Micah 5.2. When Herod was seeking to know where Jesus had been born, the chief priests and the scribes quote part of verse 2 about his birth and then part of verse 4 stating that he would shepherd his people, Israel. Jesus would declare in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The bread of life came from the house of bread to feed and shepherd God's people. Verse 4 here says, He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. It wasn't just Jesus' identity as this ruler from ancient days that was to give people hope, but his calling here as the one who would stand and shepherd in the majesty and strength of the Lord. Now notice the combination here of this shepherd king role. Majesty here is a kingly word. It is not a shepherdly word, if that's a word. (laughs) Majesty is is royal, it's regal, right? It's about a king ruling. Shepherds out in the field are dirty and, and gross. They're not majestic. But this king would rule and shepherd in majesty. And notice the result of this shepherd king's work at the end of verse four. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. This is the security that was pictured in chapter 4, what we saw last week. Not only no war, but each man sitting under his own vine and fig tree. And then notice the first line of verse 5. And he shall be their peace. This could also be translated, he will be the one of peace. This is the prince of peace whom Micah's contemporary Isaiah spoke of in that famous prophecy in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David, remember the promise to David, and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, themes of the prophets from this time forth and forevermore. This should be our song of peace. O come, O come, Emmanuel is fitting then. O come, desire of nations bind in one the hearts of all mankind. Bid thou our sad division cease, and be thyself our king of peace. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. 
Emmanuel, God with us, who Isaiah also prophesied about in Isaiah 7. He is the one who would gather the nations to himself. Now it's important that we understand the inauguration of these things in Jesus' earthly life and ministry, that we see their fulfillment of them through his church, and that we look to the latter days to see them unfolding. We have to understand these stages of redemptive history and how these things unfold. Stephen Dempster in the ESV expository commentary points out that Jesus' birth demonstrates that Israel's long exilic existence is finally coming to an end. Jesus reconstitutes Israel by his choice of 12 disciples who represent the 12 tribes. Now, to this day, there is no united earthly kingdom. The, the northern tribes and the southern tribes never actually reunited. But when Jesus calls the 12 disciples, that is a picture of the reunification of the tribes. But his mission goes beyond that. The mission that Jesus calls his church to involves the gathering of all nations, Jews and Gentiles. This is what Paul describes in Ephesians 2, 11 and following, when he reminds the Gentiles who had once been alienated from the people of Israel, he says, now in Christ, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. You think Paul was thinking of Micah 5.5 5 here when he said that? For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, speaking of the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, speaking of the Jews, right? Jesus comes and does what was humanly impossible, not only symbolically reunifying the tribes of Israel as he calls his 12 disciples, he comes and he unifies Jews and Gentiles together, which was humanly impossible. He unifies the nations. He gives this picture of the gathering and the bringing back of all nations under his reign and his rule. The prince of peace from Podunk, Bethlehem, is the king of kings and lord of lords who laid down his life in order to kill the hostility. That hostility, as the rest of Micah 5 describes, invo involves God dealing with the nations and with his own people. Verse 7 here is a picture of the remnant of Jacob, God's true chosen people, being a blessing to the nations. It says, the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. This idea of dew covering the ground is a, is a picture of God's people being a blessing, a, a refreshment to the nations. This is a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. That God's chosen people would be a blessing to all nations. Verse 8 is kind of the opposite picture. It's a picture of Israel then judging and ruling over the nations as God's chosen people. Look here. The remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations. Again, same 
wording from the previous verse, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. And verse 9 is interesting. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. Although the southern kingdom would return to the land after the exile, they would not fulfill this. In Jesus' day, God's people were still ruled by the Romans. And while people wanted to make Jesus a political Messiah, he reassured them, as he told Pilate during his trial in John 18, that his kingdom is not of this world. If it was, he said, his servants would have been fighting that he might not be delivered over to the Jews. But he was delivered, that he might go to the cross, that he might kill the hostility between Jews and Gentiles, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. This is our source of peace. All other attempts at peace will ultimately fail. So what does this mean for us today as the church of Jesus Christ? Leslie Allen in his commentary explains it like this. First, a war must be won before the role that belongs to peace can be played. Judgment on the oppressors and vindication of the oppressed must come before the, peace, the peaceable fruit of salvation can be born. He explains this as a paradox that applies to the church today in a spiritual sense. Referencing Paul in Ephesians 6 15, who tells us to put on the shoes for our feet. Again, this picture of the soldier's armor in Ephesians 6, which indicates the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Alan continues, he says, the divine plan for the church is at once to fight the forces of evil and also to offer to men who are God's enemies the benefits of life and salvation. God's purpose is our imperative. To a 20th century church, now 21st, obviously, he was writing in the 70s, he says, to a 20th century church that often feels powerless in a pagan environment, a dwindling minority attacked by hostile forces on every hand is given this prophetic word of encouragement and stimulus. So how could Israel be used by the Lord to judge the nations? How can we as the church today, the church of Jesus Christ, be used by the Lord to offer the benefits of life and salvation to God's enemies? It starts by us being purified and sanctified by the Lord himself. Verse 9 doesn't happen if verses 10 through 14 don't happen. We see the same language from the beginning of verse 6 here in Verse 10, and in that day, declares the Lord, meaning the last days, God says here, verses 10 through 14, that he will cut off five different times. He will destroy. He will throw down. He will root out. Let's look at this list of things. Verse 10, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. Some trust in horses, some in chariots, the psalm says, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They were trusting in military security 
and these offensive weapons, right? Horses and chariots to, to go and to fight. Then he says, I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. If the horses and chariots were the offensive weapons, here are the defensive weapons, right? The defensive fortifications, our cities and our strongholds that we are trying to, to hide ourselves behind. Verse 12, I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. God will cut off the idolatry and the false worship among his people. Verse 13 and 14, I'll cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you. You shall bow down no more to the works of your hands. I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. These carved images, these pillars, these Asherah images, this was Asherah was the female fertility goddess. These were not kid-friendly images, okay? This would have been very explicit types of things that people would have been seeing. God saying, I'm going to come and I'm going to wipe those things out. All of these, these external things in which God's people were tempted to put their hope, they would all be cut off. When what things are we tempted to put our hope? We aren't riding horses and chariots into battle anymore. What about our high-tech military weaponry, our tanks and our fighter jets? Is that where our hope is as the people of God? I'm not anti-military, okay? But I'm just saying, at the end of the day, is that where our hope should be? That we need to keep building, we need to keep up with whoever else, right? So we can defend ourselves. Again, not saying we shouldn't, but is that where our hope is as God's people? What about our houses and our cities? I mentioned last week, witnessing the destruction from the tornado in Mayfield, Kentucky, which I just found out his house is going to be taking a trip down there for spring break, right? To do some rebuilding. So that's pretty awesome. Um, but what a sobering reality to see an entire city almost leveled to the ground and to realize, and our homes are like these things we build that feel so secure can be taken just like that. Maybe we're not practicing sorcery or visiting fortune tellers, but let us not think that we aren't tempted to look for answers in places other than God's revealed word. We may not have statues of fertility goddesses in our front yards, but that doesn't mean that there aren't powerful cultural forces competing for our attention and our allegiance. This is a major part of the battle of the Christian life, where we seek to, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body so that we might live, Romans 8, 13. And as we seek to be sanctified and purified by God, we are to remember that our hope for true peace in the midst of the afflictions of this life is only found in him. The last verse here, verse 15, may seem like it doesn't relate to us today. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Isn't this language of anger and wrath and God executing vengeance on the nations that didn't obey? Isn't that just for the Old Testament? Isn't God all warm and snuggly in the New Testament? 
Well, Stephen Dempster is helpful again here. He writes that the final work of the Messiah is depicted here. In order to bring peace to the world, he will use violence. Not for the sake of violence itself, but because sometimes violent injustice may be ended only with violent justice. God's use of violence, inevitable in a violent world, is intended to subvert human violence in order to bring the creation along to a point where violence is no more. That's why we read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 for our New Testament reading. You can turn back there if you would like. I'm not going to read the whole thing again. Um, I'm just going to be starting at verse 5. But Paul is writing here to Christians, reminding them that the end is near and that their suffering for Christ is not in vain. Concerning the persecutions and the afflictions that they are enduring for their faith in Christ, Paul said, beginning in verse 5, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the parallel to Micah 5.15. It's very clear. Those who do not obey God in Micah 5.15 feel and experience the wrath and anger and vengeance of God. Here, those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus experience the same consequences. It says they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes, when? On that day, okay? Got to keep remembering that the things Micah is talking about, that in that day, that's, this is what it's talking about here. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, believed because our testimony to you was believed. What a stark contrast between pain and peace. Pain comes, not just pain in this life, but eternal pain from not knowing God and not obeying the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And so conversely, peace comes from knowing God and obeying the gospel of the Lord Jesus, the one who is our peace. The question for us today, then, is do we have peace with God? Do we know him? Do we obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus? And when it says this here to obey God in, in Micah 5 and to obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus, it doesn't mean that you get saved by your obedience. But that is a fruit of your salvation. It's proof to the watching world that you really do know him and you really do love him because you obey his commandments. You obey his gospel. We shouldn't read this and be like, oh no, this is like some works righteousness. No, exactly the opposite. This is the fruit of our salvation. This is the, the righteousness of Christ coming out through us and through our lives. 
So do we? Do we do this? Do we know him? Do we obey him? Do we have peace with God? That is the question that we all need to wrestle with. So let us then let him, like he did in Micah 5, let, him, let us let him cut off the idols in our lives so that we can walk in his peace and that we can offer to those who are his enemies the benefits of life and salvation. Let us pray. God, you are so good to us. You have done what we cannot do ourselves. You have reconciled Jews and Gentiles. You have killed the hostility between nations through the cross. God, the only way we can experience peace with you individually is by being reconciled to you through Christ, by turning from our sins in repentance, by turning to you in faith. And God, the only way that there will be peace on earth, peace among the nations, is ultimately in the return of Christ. But we thank you that you send your church out to declare peace, to declare that the war is ended, to declare that Jesus has broken down that dividing wall and has killed the hostility. God, may we go out as your ambassadors, as those clothed with spiritual armor that you give us. God, to wage war, to call men and women, to turn from their sin, to be reconciled to you through your son, Jesus Christ. God, thank you for the hope we have. Thank you for the promises of going from pain to peace. And God, thank you that you are the one who does all these things for us, for our good, and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.